Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, October 5th, we are studying Proverbs chapter 22, verses 1-16. through 16. The Lord's wisdom does not discriminate between old and young. He desires that his word provide the foundation for his people's lives at every stage. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Jason Casper. Pastor Casper serves at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. Pastor Casper, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Well, thank you. Thanks, Jim. It's good to have you with us. I know you've, you've been with us before with as a part of a roundtable. Now it's just you and me getting to talk about the book of Proverbs and, and what a joy it is. As we get started this morning, give us just a general overview of Proverbs, what we need to know, context, as you know, is not the same in the book of Proverbs, especially this section. Things maybe seem random. What, what do we need to know about Proverbs going into the text we've got today? So this, this particular section of Proverbs, it's useful to think of it in terms of what you've already studied up to this point, because really this is the last section of the proper uh, Solomon wisdom area. So we're going to, you, not we, but y'all are going to get into the remainder of Proverbs later. For us, this is the end of the, of the Solomon part. And it is, it's sort of, it reads and it feels like a random collection of wisdom sayings where there is more continuity earlier on in, in Proverbs. Here, it gets to be a little bit more disjointed. And yet, in, in, the, in the reading of that text, there is still so much good wisdom contained in it that it's, it's easy to miss it because of, the, of the, the disconnected flow from verse to verse. So it's it's going to be useful. It's useful for us to look at it that way. And I think it's also kind of cool to to think of Proverbs in the sense that it is it's a catechetical teaching book. This really is here you know the law of God and the 10 commandments, but here are the expansions of it. This is how you interpret and live and function within the 10 commandments in the for us the Christian life for the Jews reading it originally within the the Jewish life of looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. Yeah, the I think catechism is a good term for the book of Proverbs for a number of reasons. It does get you to the basics. It takes you to the Ten Commandments. It expounds upon them. It puts them into practice for your everyday life. And it is intended for teaching. I mean, that's what a catechism does, is that it teaches. So often we've heard Solomon say, my son, listen to this. I mean, he's, he's talking to his son, his biological sons, and, and yet he's also giving teaching to every Christian. So I think catechism is a good way to approach the book of Proverbs as a whole and to help tie some of these strands together. As we'll see, again, sometimes it seems random, but they do go together within a section and especially within the whole book. And particularly, I think we can never lose sight of the whole of Scripture, that Proverbs propels us outward into other spots of Scripture as well, so that we have that overall context in which to use them. Indeed, it's very, it's very useful and very true. And, and this, this idea of approaching the Scripture and the law and gospel this way is not something that we stumbled into out of thin air. 
This is something that Luther pulled from Scripture itself. When Jesus teaches the Ten Commandments and says, you've heard that it says not to kill, but I tell you, if you hate your brother in your heart, you've already killed him. That expansion of the law is exactly the way that we have been taught that the law should function. We should understand it in, in terms of, of it as not just as a, as a cursory example of one specific act that you shouldn't do, but rather here is a broader sense of life. And Luther adds the idea that, that it isn't just don't do X, but also instead of X, do Y. Y is, is, the, is the righteous, better, wiser version of that behavior. Yeah, and we get a lot of that from Solomon here as he compares and contrasts the way of wisdom or the way of righteousness with the way of folly or the way of wickedness. And you get both of those. Here's what you should avoid, and here's what you should do. And I particularly, that way of, of wisdom, what you should do when it comes to the commandments, is something that I've always tried to emphasize, and I've come to appreciate more and more in my time as a pastor and, and as a Christian, that the commandments aren't simply things that don't do this, but here are the good things that God actually wants me to have. And, and when I approach the commandments that way, they are law, they do accuse me, but I do start to see them as the gift that God intends. Indeed, and it's, it is in that instructive use that Christians should live and function with the law. And even though in that instructive way we still find accusation on ourselves anyway, that doesn't change the function of the law. It functions in all of, as we learned in our catechism, the three functions of the law, the curb, the guide, and the mirror. In all cases, the law does all of those things. And it's, it's really, from, from this side of the eschaton, from this side of the, the resurrection, it's hard for us to parse out when exactly is it doing that thing? It is the law. It does what the law does. And when it accuses, when it needs to accuse, it accuses. And when it needs to instruct, it instructs. And so we're going to see all that in the text for today. We've got Proverbs chapter 22, verses 1 through 16. I'm going to read about half of it for us on this side of the break. We'll talk about it, and then we'll look at the rest on the other side. So Proverbs 22, starting at verse 1. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked. Whoever guards his soul will keep far from them. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The rich rules over the poor. And the borrower is the slave of the lender. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. That's halfway through the text, so I'll pause there. Verses 1 through 8 of Proverbs chapter 22. Pastor Casper, let's just start with number 1, verse 1. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. What's Solomon got to say to us here? So here he seems to be instructing us about reputation and the value of the opinion that others have for us and that we have of others and how that is expressed. Um, and and it, it, of course, should drive us immediately to the catechism. What is, where, where do we find this there? We find this in the Eighth Commandment. That's immediately where what comes to mind when I hear that text. A good name, reputation, I think of, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and love God so that we do not tell lies about our neighbor, betray him, slander him, or hurt his reputation. And here is the 
the Solomon twist of what's the good stuff, but rather defend him, speak well of him, and explain everything in the kindest way. This value of good name, the value of reputation, is is what what's really being gotten at there in the eighth commandment and our and the way we teach it to our children. This is the way that we speak, not only to to avoid hurting our neighbor and their, and their reputation, but but even bigger than that, to uplift and to uphold and to reinforce that name that all of us would amongst ourselves and throughout our Christian world and throughout the world around us, that everyone would have the benefit and the value of this good name and this good reputation that follows us where we go. And that, that this, this way that we conduct ourselves is really a uniquely Christian way of behaving because the world seeks to tear down, the world seeks to destroy. And when we are living from the world and as the world, we of course do that. And this is, this is something that is such such an obvious and dangerous thing for for today's I, I would I'll, I'll say youth, but that's not really a fair way to talk about it because it applies to us too, and neither of us are youths. This this world in which we live, where there's too much communication amongst people that is that is blind, that hides behind social media and other and other outlets and what we do then is we're we're freer and we're more comfortable to be a, more vicious in the way we speak and that's exactly not what Solomon is talking about he's he's speaking about the opposite of that it, it isn't it isn't good for us to communicate in such a way that we're comfortable tearing each other down we should instead in christian love communicate in such a way that it that it uplifts and it upbuilds and it encourages and 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 brings heaps good name upon our neighbor and upon other people what strikes me about the way that Solomon teaches all of that here in this first verse is that he reminds you what's good for you first. The Eighth Commandment certainly teaches us to protect our neighbor's reputation. Here Solomon is saying, look, it's better for you to have a good name than all of this wealth. That He, he reminds the Christian just what a valuable possession a good reputation is. And this is something that is true in every place. But you and I are pastors in small towns, and I think it's particularly true in small towns, where everyone knows everyone else, and the value of having a good reputation is immense. And so here, Solomon is is reminding you as an individual, look, your reputation matters, and this is how much. And then that propels me as a Christian to treat my neighbor in the same way, that I would love my neighbor as I love myself. If it's so important for me to have a good name, then it's equally as important for my neighbor to have a good name. And certainly, as you as you said, this is something that our world struggles with greatly. It's something that is given to us as Christians, and, and we too struggle with greatly. Indeed. It, it is just this, this continuous problem we have. And, and isn't it interesting that the Lord gives us the things we need to hear in the way we need to hear them? Mm. That, that instruction your good name is a value because the Lord knows that we value ourselves above, above other people. That's why the Shema breaks down the law that way. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord, your God with all your heart and soul and mind. You understand yourself and you love yourself more than you're probably willing to admit. And so the instructive use is to start with you. Your good name has value. And because of that, it should be extended out beyond to other people so that you already know what the value is in you. Can you apply that to someone else and say, ah, it must also be true that their good name is of great value. Mm, for, for sure. Verse two, 
the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. Uh, uh, rich and poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. Where does that happen, Pastor Casper? I think that happens in the divine service. <laughs> Where else is that going to happen? Uh-huh. That's that is this is such a fun little one to have thrown in there because. In isolation, you get to hear that that sense of what's happening. Where what is it where the rich and the poor meet together more so than any other place? And in the public sphere of life, it really is in the divine service in the Christian church, where people of all stripes and all all, all varieties of folks and levels of income and everything, everybody comes together around the word of God, hears and receives, and everyone hears and receives in a way that we are all equally worthless and sinful before God. And that's that is such a beautiful thing to know that 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 God intends us to hear it that way. This is this is what we're supposed to to, to see and feel when when we are in the presence of other Christians. We are all poor, miserable beggars before the throne of God, waiting to hear a, but a word from Him, a word of mercy, a word of forgiveness, and that's exactly what we receive. I'm reminded of James chapter two here with this verse. We studied James here on Sharper Iron a little while ago, and there's tons of connections between James and Proverbs. And James talks about showing partiality to the rich within the context of the church. And I mean, this this verse here, I think, provides the perfect background. How, how can there be partiality to rich or poor within the church when the background Solomon gives us, the foundation, the Lord is the maker of them all. So by virtue of the fact that I am God's creature, the first article, there is no partiality. By virtue of the second article, that that Christ has saved me, a poor, miserable sinner, just like he saved you, a poor, miserable sinner, there's no partiality. By virtue of the third article, that he's given this by the preaching of his word that is proclaimed to all people, rich and poor alike, there is no partiality. Over and over again, that that same truth is is ringing in the ears. And, And I think you're right, that it is in the divine service, within the Christian church, that this verse finds its fulfillment. Indeed, this this is really where rich and poor come up. And actually, I've I've got a little note later on. I can't couldn't find it in my notes right now. It'll come up as we're going along. But there's there's more there too. There's also charity and the way that charity functions among rich and poor within the context of the church in in the life that she has for us. And and that that interaction too is is part of this this cool thing where it, where it is it's a face to face interaction where where we as Christians speak to each other in love in a way that that the rest of the world doesn't and really can't because it doesn't it doesn't have access to the forgiveness and since there is no forgiveness for them they have they have no direction and no motivation to be forgiving generous and merciful to their neighbor at least not in the in the Christian way. Right. Let's keep going. Verse 3. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. So here we've got two uh, characters, if I can put it that way, in the book of Proverbs. We've got the prudent and the simple. What's the difference between the two here? Well, we're not allowed to call people simple anymore, Pastor. That's, that's Solomon did it. <laughs> No, it's, it is interesting. Yeah, the prudent and the simple. And, and you could almost make this extrapolation that the prudent and the simple are sort of like the aged and the young or the wise and the foolish or all sorts of, of, of pairings of folks. The prudent are those who are, who are behaving from wisdom and righteousness and seeing danger for what it is. And the simple don't. And sometimes the simple don't because they are willfully ignorant. Sometimes the don't the simple don't because they they lack the wisdom to see and observe it. Sometimes the simple are young and and haven't 
seen enough of life or of the world to be aware that there is danger. And so there's actually a little bit, it seems like there's even more going on there that, that not only are, are Christians called to be the wise, but there seems to be a, a sort of a hidden instruction piece in here that the, that the wise and the prudent should instruct the simple and guard and protect the simple and help them to avoid it. Why? Because there is danger. The simple will walk, will walk headlong into this danger without, without looking askance at it and think that everything is just fine until they walk right into their doom, mm. right into their own destruction. Right. And I think, I think you're right on when this, I mean, this is what we were talking about earlier. I think when it comes to the way the law functions in our lives, that at times we're going to read, say, verse 3, and and it's right that I would examine myself and, and see, well, am I being prudent in this moment and, and avoiding the danger that I should, or am I being simple and just simply going on without paying attention? But there's also that instruction aspect of it as well. How, how can I, as one who has been made prudent by the wisdom that the Lord gives, share that wisdom, speak that wisdom, which is certainly part of other Proverbs that we see, and it's it's here in this text as well. And and we would be remiss, I think, Pastor Casper, if we didn't take a look at verse six, because I think verse six here in this chapter is one of those that we know <laughs> and, and we we hear often. So it goes like this train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So we should teach our children the word of God, and that should should have lasting effects. Let's let's ponder this one for a little bit. Yeah, teach your children well. We gotta have we have to instruct our, our children in the in the ways that we would have them go, and and it's it, it is it is a beautiful it is a beautiful promise and and responsibility for adulthood and parents and leadership in the family of God. But it's it it, it is also useful and new and necessary for us to remember. That it's not it's not a guarantee. I mean, this kind of is this this juxtaposition of wisdom and folly. It's kind of like odds mitigation. We know that folly leads to destruction, and this other path, this wise path, this righteous path, is going to produce better results. Odds are, it's not a guarantee, but it improves. It gets a little better. Um, we've been studying at uh, at Mount Calvary. We've been studying the the Pentateuch lately, and so. We just covered this this section in in Deuteronomy, which is which is really I think it really instructs that because this is the same these are the same people and the same texts that they're using on a regular basis. Here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Deuteronomy chapter six. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then skipping ahead near the end of that chapter, when your son asks you in time to come, what is is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you. Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And he goes on to the mighty hand and the outstretched arm and the work of God. And that's, that is this catechetical instructive function that, that the word of God should have for us in teaching children. When your children ask, why is it that we go to church? Well, the answer isn't, I have to go to church because grandma said so. The answer is we get to go to church. We have a Lord who comes and speaks to us that we can hear him and receive the forgiveness of sins in our ears from the mouth of our pastor. We have a Lord who speaks his word into our ears so that we can hear and believe. And he then also brings us every good thing and every benefit directly for us to hear and receive. That's why we get to go to church, dear child. What a great idea that is. That's right. 
God, God came up with that idea, I think, and so it must be a good idea. Uh, you know, you, you're talking about um, odds, odds mitigation. I think it was the way that you put it. Oh, yeah. That that you know, this isn't an ironclad promise. And I've had a couple of guests previously say this: that these are proverbs, not promises, in the sense that the gospel is a promise. That the proverbs, and this is true of wisdom literature in general, describe the way life often goes or the way life ought to be, but it doesn't necessarily equal a one-to-one correspondence. And we can all think of children who were trained up the way that they should go, and they have departed from it. This is one of the greatest sources of sorrows for many parents in Christian congregations, is to watch their children who they raised in the faith depart from what they were given as children. And I think it's I think it's wise when we read a verse like this to keep in mind the parable of the sower. Matthew chapter 13, there's other parallels. Matthew 13 is the one that comes to mind first. Where where the seed is cast on, on different types of soil. And it bears fruit in the good soil, but it doesn't bear fruit in other soil. Such that, I guess what I what I want to bring out is that is training a child in the way he should go worth it, even if they do end up departing. Yes, they do. Or yes, it yes it is worth it. And it doesn't mean that the word of God has failed. I think of what Paul writes in, in Romans chapter 11 when he, he writes about those who rejected the promise of the people of Israel, that, that it didn't mean the word of God failed. It meant that they sinned and that they rejected it. That's that's their fault. There's I mean, there's a, there's a lot there, Pastor Casper. All of it is yeah, to well, say... Then, go ahead, go ahead. And well, I was going to say, and that was Isaiah 55. Yeah. The word goes out and it accomplishes the, the work for which God sends it. That's, that is what the word does. And where, where does, what, what's unique about the parable of the sower, you know, where the seed doesn't grow, it doesn't grow where it was never, where it was never sown, right. where it's never been cast. Faith cannot come in an absence of any input. It is the word of God that causes faith to be born, that causes it to grow and, and, and mature and, and exist at all. If we don't train up our children in the way they should go, we guarantee that they won't know it. That's right. That's right. And I think, I mean, part of what this verse also invites us to do as Christians is it invites us to pray that, that you know, say you've got that child who's grown up in the church, they've been taught the way that they should go, but then he, he leaves the church later in life. I think a verse like this invites us to bring it before the Lord and, and remind him of what he says here, that, that Lord, this child has received your word. He has been taught your word. He is walking away from it right now. Make good on your promise. Bring him back to it when he is old. I think a verse like this invites us to that kind of prayer based on what the Lord has told us here in his word. Well, and especially the the function of mothers and fathers in the lives of their children. And, And for me particularly as a young man, this was my mother's role. And that is that gentle cajoling. Hey, I haven't seen you at church in a few weeks. What's going on? oh, yeah, I should really go to church. Because I was taught, I knew better. I was instructed in the way that I should go. And that gentle pressure from the right source, and sometimes that is one parent and not the other, but that, that gentle encouragement that this is this is what you need to be doing. You know you should do this. Why are you not doing that? Mm. That's part of the instructive nature. The instruction is the groundwork that's laid for young children. And as we grow and, and mature and head off in our own direction in life, there's also that that other encouragement that comes in the in the in the gentle words on the other side 
Have you found a church yet where you're living? Do you know anybody from your church? Have you met someone there? Do you have a way to get there easily? Is it nearby or is it far? How are, how are you deciding where to live? Because, you know, where the church is proximate to your job and everything else should be one of the features in deciding where you where you plant yourself in terms of finding a house or a place to rent. That's another one of those pieces. All that stuff fits in together, and it all comes from this, this instruction in the youth. We come up as small children, as, as young people, learning in the faith and then applying more of this as we get older. It's very, it is very interesting how, how, how much wiser everyone gets when you get a few more years under your belt. And all that foolishness that you used to cast off as a, as a teenager suddenly becomes a lot less foolish and sometimes quite brilliant in observation mm-hmm. backwards at, at your own mistakes. That's why you're so much wiser than me. Because you're older. I have, well, I have more. It's because I have more gray in my beard. That's actually the thing. That that's a different proverb. I think the the gray hair is the crown of the age. <laughs> well, one of the things that I appreciate what what you're saying there is is that you know this train up a child in the way that he should go is that I think and this isn't wrong, but we we tend to think of this as you know young children. That's who this applies to. That that we're training up our young children, and at a certain point, it stops. And to a degree, when your children don't live under the same household, you don't have the same effect on them as parents. But that doesn't mean that you stop talking to them. That doesn't mean that you stop being mom or dad to them. It takes a different shape. But you still have, as mom or dad, however old your children are, you still have that place to train up that child in the way that he should go, even if it is the gentle questioning of a mom or a dad it later in life that's that's still a part of it so that all that i guess is to say to those parents who are, are discouraged don't give up keep keep training your child in the way that he should go out whatever form that takes depending on where you and your child are keep doing it keep giving the word of god we got just a couple seconds here to wrap that conversation up before the break yeah well and i, and I would even turn it back the other way not just that but be instructed as well Yes. This isn't just something catechesis never ends. This is not something that stops because I've gone through catechism, I've gone through confirmation, or I've graduated from college, or I've I've met and married the spouse that that God wants for me to have. It all continues throughout your entire life, even up till the very day that we're getting ready. That was very interesting how you rubbed your finger across my face in the camera there. <laughs> right up to the very day that that we are taken down the aisle with a, with a funeral pall in our casket. Catechesis happens from 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 the font to the casket, and and it's it, it's it's the life of of the Christian from start to finish. Amen, amen. We never we never quit learning the Word of God as Christians. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFUO. Going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, October 5th. We're looking at Proverbs chapter 22, verses 1 through 16. We've got Pastor Jason Casper with us. He serves at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas. Remember that if we miss something that you want to hear more about, or if we cover something you got another question, give us a call. Let us know. The listener comment line is 314-996-1542. You can leave a message there, or you can send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org and leave your message there. Let us know what you want to know more about, which proverb we missed. I'll be putting out some bonus podcast material to cover those verses that we get submitted. Pastor Casper, there's a couple of verses left in that section, and and I know you want to talk about them. So we're not going to go to the rest of the text just yet. Verse 7, the rich rules over the poor— and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Now, we just said at the beginning of the program that the rich and the poor meet together because the Lord's the maker of them all in the divine service. Now the rich are ruling over the poor. What's going on? Well, so this one is a little less instructive in that same way. This one is more observational, right? This is, this is a little bit more about this is what the disorder and the chaos of the sinful world looks like. There's a uh, there's a, a Christian financial advice personality of which of whom I'm a tremendous fan, um, but that person loves to use this verse. It is it is the typing verse for everything that's said. The rich rules over the poor. The borrower is slave to the lender. So don't use debt, which is great advice, but it then tends to tagline into a sort of prosperity expectational statement about Christianity. If you don't do this, then everything will automatically come up roses and your life will be perfect and you will have plenty in your house and you'll be financially successful and everything's going to go great. And that isn't a guarantee. That's not a perfect promise. This is, this is a, a warning instruction against debt because the negative is absolutely true. Debt will make you slave to someone. So that's why it is to be avoided. It isn't a guarantee that something else good will happen if you don't. This again, this is kind of like what I was talking about before. This is that that mitigation of, of vice or the the idea that the bad things that can happen to you have have still have possibilities, but if if you behave in certain different ways, there's less chance of calamity falling holding you today. So let's push that back just a little bit. Right. I mean, it's recognizing what what kind of literature we're talking about, what is trying to be conveyed here. And, you know, I mean, just another, I think, observation with this verse, the rich rules over the poor, that is an observation of the way things tend to go. That's not to say that it should be that way in the church necessarily. I mean, we were just talking about this with verse two, that, well, the rich rules over the poor, does that mean that you know, your rich members there at Mount Calvary and LaGrange should have the bigger say in what happens in your congregation than the poor members? That's that's not what Solomon's doing here. He's making a, a general observation about the way things go, and take it for what it is. Don't try to make it into some sort of ironclad promise that, you know, you put this in, you're always going to get this out. R- recognize how sin has broken this world, and it doesn't always go the way things go, and that some of this is that just simple observation Solomon passing it on as wisdom to avoid some of the pitfalls that are there. Fair enough. Yeah, and there's and there's room to take this and and interpret and instruct the positive statement out of it too. Is it automatically wicked and evil for someone to rule over another? No, that's part of the function of the fourth commandment. Is it automatically bad and a failure for a person to be a servant to someone else? That's also not true. 
But in fact, what's happening here is is that identifying who these people are, the one who is ruling is to be a benevolent and faithful ruler and a, and a, and a lover of God in the way that they, they conduct ruling. And similarly, the servant is to be a faithful and happy servant. Serving not not grudgingly about how they're they're not paid enough or they don't get enough hours or their benefits are miserable, but rather being cheerful that we get to go to work and and have a wealthy benefactor who will pay me to do this thing, whatever it is I do, whether I sweep floors and make widgets or preach on Sunday morning. These are all tasks that we are assigned to do, and it's part of our vocation in life. Mm. Some of the abuses of authority that you're talking about show up in verse 8. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. Whoever sows injustice. Injustice is a big topic these days in our world. The scriptures have a lot to say about it. What does the scripture here particularly have to say about injustice? Indeed, yeah. Injustice and reaping calamity. I love... I love how this this injustice, this justice and injustice juxtaposition comes up really heavily, especially in the prophets too. But it comes up heavily here. And uh, we were, as I was saying, we're doing Pentateuch study at Mount Calvary, and and uh, we came across this section in Leviticus that I I am I'm sure I've read it before, but it never struck me before until until the current unpleasantness happened across my eyes as I was reading Leviticus chapter 19. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all the night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall not do injustice in the court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. This is such great stuff, such cool, uh, cool stuff to get that that contextual structure. Remember, Leviticus is is the primary foundational writing of the Jewish faith. So to speak about justice and injustice in the in the Hebrew Scriptures, we really have to be keeping this in in reference and this in mind that injustice has this definition hanging on it whenever it's spoken of it elsewhere. And the 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 ideal the, the idea that injustice is not just treating your neighbor poorly, but also the, the shifting, what we would, what we would, uh, I guess in popular society, we talk about this as sort of equality, equity kind of language that some people deserve more friendliness and kindness than other people, because there is a sense of injustice somewhere else. And that's clearly not supported in the word of God. The word of God says, it says that everyone is to be treated fairly and that there isn't, there, there's not deference or, or, or special balance given to anyone that justice and injustice, the opposite of justice, injustice is treating anyone in an imbalanced way mm. or giving preferential something to a person over another. Mm. And that's really, that's not what the word of God leaves us to do. Mm-hmm. And that would, that would be one of those examples where we want to let the word of God do the defining for us rather than coming to the text of Scripture with a preconceived definition, seeing how the text doesn't match up with our preconceived definition, and then Hmm. becoming angry at the text of Scripture. That's interesting. I think I may have heard something about that somewhere. Isn't there a... Ah, there's a principle, I think. It's like uh, Scripture interprets Scripture or something to that effect. I think that might be what, what I heard once. Yeah, that's exactly how we should always approach the Word of God. It is it is the 
we, 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 to use a, a 25 cent word, it's the perspicuity of scripture. There are some things that are more clear. That's what perspicuity means. Those things that are more clear are used to interpret those things that are less clear so that all of it will become more clear and more sensible to us, which of course we can never understand it all truly from on this side of the resurrection, but we can get a better view by using the things that are easier to understand. Can you spell the word perspicuity? I can barely spell the name Casper. Why would I be able to spell perspicuity? <laughs> it does mean the clarity of Scripture, for sure, for sure. Let's let's take a look at the rest of our text for today. Proverbs 22, now, verses 9 through 16. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. Drive out a scoffer, and strife will go out, and quarreling and abuse will cease. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. The eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the traitor. The sluggard says, There is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. The mouth of forbidden women is a deep pit. He with whom the Lord is angry will fall into it. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. That is the rest of the text for today, Proverbs 22, verses 9 through 16. So, verse 9, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. This is speaking about generosity. It is. It's charity, right? The hymn says, where charity and love prevail, there God is ever found. Brought here together by Christ's love, by love are we thus bound. For those who are keeping track at home, that's LSB 845, where charity and love prevail. We should always cite those things, right? That's, that is the idea, this charity and this generosity of spirit that those who have are in Christian love to be giving to those who have not. And there's a and there's a part of that that's also so very important that's easy to lose track of that that the one who receives uh, the, the one who receives actually sees the giver and that's something that's missing from um, from charity as as we as we see it and teach it today and as it's understood where it's been removed from the church for a large part instead we have we have benefits and and receivings that come in the mailbox instead of at the hand of a giver. And it looks, it feels, and it sounds completely different. When a beggar comes before someone who has, and that's another word we're not allowed to say, we're not allowed to call people beggars anymore, but that's, that's, a, that's a vocational description. When someone comes asking, begging, pleading, I, I have need, I'm hungry, and my children need food. And the person who has sees the, sees the truth and the, and the struggle in their face and gives them of their own wealth. That's what charity and generosity look like. Charity and generosity, when there's a blinder between them, they don't look the same. And what's lost is the community that, is, that exists within Christianity, that the rich and the poor are gathered together. And in gathering together in the faith, that's where charity happens. And that's where generosity happens. It happens in this face-to-face -face interaction. I agree. Is that the, but I want to I dwell on that a little bit. Is that the picture of this matter of a bountiful or a good eye? That there is this, there's this idea of I, I look upon my neighbor with this bountiful eye I, and I see him as he is, as one who is in need and I share. Is that the idea of the bountiful eye? Yeah, that's what I think is going on there. That this bountiful eye, it, it isn't just that it has bounty in itself, but it sees the, it sees the, the good and the benefit 
of, of what others can receive. That bountiful eye looks out and, and, and sees the, 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 the use of generosity, the value of it. Not, and, and that's, I'm using the wrong words there because it makes it sound like generosity is this great and wonderful thing in and of itself. And it isn't. It's, it's the thing that a, that a compliant good slave of God does mm-hmm. <laughs> is that they are generous in their treating of their neighbor. But the bountiful eye looks out and sees that that need is to be fulfilled. And I can, so I will do it. Mm-hmm. Let it be so. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Jesus uses the language, the eye is the lamp of the body, such that what, what I'm looking upon is going to to shine into me. It's going to to let that light. So, am I? What, what am I looking upon? And when I look at my neighbor in need, I'm I'm reminded a little bit of of what I mean when we when we serve our neighbor who is in need. Who are we really serving? We're serving. We're serving. We we look upon the face of God, the Lord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is absolutely true. And I think so. What what you were saying about when when there is a distance between the giver and the beggar that that does and I, I don't want to disparage for example any sort of charity that does send things to people that we don't know right that that's not yeah, absolutely that, not we're not disparaging that at all but it is it is difficult i think when it is the person right in front of you because i i see the person right in front of me who has the need today and I give to him, but what happens if he shows up the next day? And and I already gave to you. Why, why should <laughs> I give to you again? And and that's where I mean that I think Pastor is Pastor Apple. What do, what does your Lord do, Pastor Apple? I know, but that's the that's the challenge. <laughs> and I and I think you know. And again, this is not to disparage the the sort of giving that does not see those who receive it. That, that there's I'm not disparaging that at all. But but that does make it easier than when I have to look at that person again and and I have to look at him with that same bountiful eye again and that that becomes challenging to me because I I think well I already gave to him shouldn't he have used it more wisely why do I have to give to him again but but as you said how often does my lord give to me and and with such generosity yeah and this and this generosity that happens in that way in that face to face way this again yeah like as you're saying it's it's not to disparage the other forms of generosity because we absolutely need we, we need our SOs and our synod that are able to gather larger amounts of funds to solve much more vast problems that that I couldn't ever solve on my own you couldn't ever solve on your own and probably we've never met a person who could on their own solve that sort of financial need or something to that effect but the the face to face stuff. This is what sort of happens. So, um, wait, what would I say? I would say like the the community soup kitchen is one of those things where it it serves both functions. Mm-hmm. People have a community soup kitchen and they they work and they interact in there and they get to see people and they get to to in, in, in interact in this generous way. But it also sort of divorces the rest of the body of Christ from the generosity. So they're able to throw some money that direction and feel good about themselves. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying that in a pejorative way as if what they're doing isn't good, which it is, but it separates them from the actual face-to-face part of the generosity. And that's different. That's something that we sort of lost in the, in the transition into the 20th, 21st century church, where our idea of charity is not out the back door of the church. That's not our default sense of the way charity should function. We think of charity as a thing that happens out the front door through the mailbox to somewhere else. 
And that isn't the same idea. There's, there is something missing. And I'm sure you've experienced this in small town ministry. It's, it's different because people will come to the back door to talk to pastor and ask for stuff. And that's, that's as, as my, in my Christian responsibility and talking to those folks, that's great to be able to do that. But in my, in my responsibility and minding the, the business of the church, it's also my responsibility to ask them, why are you back again? What's, what's, what's changed in your life? Last time you came to me with a completely different story than the one you have now, and these things don't match. Why is that? That's another piece of this puzzle that's lo- that's lost without the face-to-face interaction. We lose the continuity between the giver and the receiver down the road. That there is that there is an understanding that I expect this to help you, not to lead you into more self-harm or into some other poor behavior as a result of this stuff. Because if this if if me giving you something doesn't help, then I'm not helping. And I should find a different way to help you. Well, and that's where the face-to-face is so important. You know, I mean, here you've got Solomon commending sharing bread with the poor. So that that daily bread, the things that we need for this body and life. But as we've been saying earlier, and is certainly true throughout the Proverbs, there are other things that ought to be shared with others, particularly the, the wisdom that is given here of, of what does it mean to be prudent? What does it mean to, you know, I mean, the, what we're saying in verse 7, the rich and the poor, the borrower and the lender, that these sort of pieces of wisdom are a part of sharing with those who are in need. And, and again, without the face-to-face, it does become very easy simply to think that I can solve the problem for someone else by just giving them money. And that's not, I mean, again, we shouldn't be afraid like of, of giving money. That, that's, I'm not disparaging that. But to recognize that sometimes the help that a person needs and the, the help that we can give is more than money. And again, without the face-to-face interaction, that becomes lost. The thing is, face-to-face interaction is, is more difficult. It puts us in a, a, a more difficult position, and we just can't lose that, I think, is, is what you're trying to say, and that, that's what I'm trying to say, too. Yeah, that's exactly. That, I agree completely. And that's and and so for us in in the in the modern sense of the church, it isn't so much that we can't lose that because some of it's already been lost. Yeah. We need to seek to regain it. Yeah, we really need to grab some ground back and and get get the church on a local level back into the notion that the people who come to the door of the church in need are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They are our children, ours to care for. Let's let's do that job because that that is our job. That's our mm-hmm. function in this community. Mm-hmm. Let's take a look at verse 10. You got another another verse stanza, not verse, stanza of that hymn where charity and love prevail. Verse 10 says, Drive out a scoffer, and strife will go out, and quarreling and abuse will cease. Yeah, I won't torture you with my singing again, but let strife among us be unknown. Let all contention cease. Be God's the glory that we seek. Be ours his holy peace. Yeah, it's not just it, it's casting out this 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 contention amongst ourselves that scoffing and and quarreling with each other this is not something that the body is to do within itself we shouldn't behave that way and that's if you think back um my grandfather's generation and they had this notion that if they were if they were uh, uh not in 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 a in a, a familial friendly standing with their with their brothers in the in the church they would abstain from the sacrament 
until such time as they, they resolved whatever that situation was, which which I think is simultaneously incredibly pious and ridiculous at the same time. <laughs> the idea that we would we would hold withhold God's forgiveness from ourselves because I'm not good enough today is ridiculous. But at the same time, it's such a cool thing that their their opinion of the forgiveness of God was that high that they wouldn't come to the table when there was tension that didn't have to be there. And that was a completely different way of viewing the 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 internal function of the church body with itself. And I, I would be surprised if there are many people who still function or think that way about their their life in the church. In, in such an intense way that there cannot be any dissension. If there is, then something's wrong and we have to abstain from, from the gifts of God until we sort this out. Mm. We, we talk about this in catechesis here at, at, at Grace, that there, there may be those times where you are struggling so much with forgiving a brother that the words that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 about reconciling with your brother before you even go to the altar, before you go to worship, that, that you want to leave the gift there and first go and be reconciled, that that might come into play. And and where it does, I, I think that that's a sign that that's it, serious. It needs to be dealt with, right? That that kind of situation that you're describing is not the sort of thing you want to let fester because you, you know what strife and anger can do. St. Paul talks about not letting the sun go down on your anger, so that when that sort of strife and contention is there, like, deal with it. And of course, the way that we have to deal with it in the church is the forgiveness of sins shared between brothers, because our older brother, Jesus Christ, has given it to us first. Indeed. Yeah, and that forgiveness that's shared amongst the body of Christ, that, that is such an important thing. And it, it is, it is. there are aspects of that where it's sad that we don't function that way in the church these days, that there isn't that sort of seriousness about what's being dealt out, that, that it is actually the, the remission of sins, that when we pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us or trespasses, depending upon which we're, we're working with today, that is exactly, I'm asking God to treat me that way. I'm asking the Lord to withhold my sins in the same way I withhold my brother's sins. That's not good. Mm. So I should be reconciled to my brother. That's right. That's right. Let's skip down to, to verse 12, because it's got a, a slight—we're we're running about five minutes here. So okay. it's a slightly different character, maybe a slightly different topic. The eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the traitor. They've got words. There's some some Eighth Commandment stuff, perhaps. But the eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge. What's Solomon saying here? The eyes of the Lord are keeping watch over us in the, in the learning of wisdom. That There is this instructive part of the faith. That wisdom is always before our eyes, and the eyes of the Lord are always on us. The, we, we think of the psalm or the, the, the mealtime prayer, the eyes of all look to thee, O Lord, and thou openest thy hand and satisfiest the desires of every living thing. This is... This is also within that same notion that this this gaze, the eyes of the Lord, is 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 His favor. It's His countenance. These are the words that Pastor speaks in his in the benediction, that the the countenance, the gaze, the eyes of the Lord would be upon us, and that and that He would always be looking with us in, in favor, and that's how this that's how this wisdom of God comes and instructs us. And it's easy for us to look at this passage and say, "Ha ha! You see." God doesn't really love us or God really isn't functioning because there isn't immediate punishment for wrongdoing. And we expect it to happen in this life. And that isn't what's promised here. 
What's promised is that it will be overthrown. Not necessarily when. It might be in this life, and sometimes it is in this life. But sometimes it is also in the next life when we only finally see that that wickedness and, and evil is overthrown. That the Lord does promise to do it, and he will. But it's not in our time. It's in God's time that this stuff happens. So we yeah. don't get to see it. Right. Yeah. The the foundation of the book of Proverbs over and over again is the resurrection. Solomon's got that in mind in so many of these Proverbs, I'm convinced. And, and, and one like this, where you read it and you see in this life, that's not always true, that the words of the traitor are not always overthrown in this life. Where is this, where is this true ultimately in the resurrection? And a verse like this invites us to trust the promise even when we can't see it right now. Pastor Cass, we've got about two minutes here on the morning. We've covered a variety of topics. We know that all Scripture, Proverbs included, points us to Christ. How how does Proverbs 22, 1-16 to do that for us? Proverbs 22, I think you touched on that with the resurrection. Proverbs 22, 1-16 does a spectacular job of teaching us what it is to live righteously and in the function of the law, what it does in its instructive sense in teaching us the way of righteousness is ultimately at the second use, the second function of the law. Even the instructive word of God in the law still has that primary function of accusing sin, finding me or I am a sinner in need of forgiveness before the throne of God. And that is the turn that drives us to the foot of the cross for forgiveness of sins in Christ. That's really what the law does on this side of the resurrection. And it is simultaneously a picture of the resurrection on the far side. There is going to be a time when the world is free from sin in the new creation, in the new heavens and the new earth, when there is no longer strife and discord and all of the positives of the the Proverbs are the only truth. All the statements of the misgivings and the missteps and the scoffer and the wicked one and everybody else, that stuff is, has gone away and is no longer part of, of, the, of the life of the Christian. There is true peace, true prosperity, true love, true repentance, true forgiveness in, in the future of the church in this resurrection that is to come. Hang on, folks. The good news is still coming. Pastor Jason Casper is the pastor at Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in LaGrange, Texas, helping us this morning with Proverbs 22, verses 1 through 16. Pastor Casper, thanks for being our guest today. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me. The resurrection is coming. It'll be a good day to see our Lord face to face, to have this true in all of its fullness. Until then, we live in faith in Jesus Christ, who is wisdom from God for you and me. I'm your host here on Sharp Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.